Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Greg Lehman. Greg is a physiotherapist, chiropractor, and strength and conditioning specialist treating musculoskeletal disorders within a biopsychosocial model. To get Greg's full bio, head over to the show notes. On this episode, Greg and I discussed many topics, including Greg's background. I asked Greg why did he go back to physiotherapy school after becoming a chiropractor. I asked Greg who had been the biggest influences on him, both professionally and personally. I asked Greg, what is pain? I asked Greg where an evolutionary perspective falls within his practice. I asked Greg, how does he treat individuals who really self-identify with their pain? I asked Greg about his assessment and treatment process. I asked Greg about health practitioners acting as long-term consultants. I asked Greg for his definition of pain. I asked Greg about his thoughts on posture and pain. I asked Greg about the use of language within rehabilitation. I asked Greg about how much importance he puts on sleep, nutrition, and other lifestyle factors when dealing with pain. I asked Greg for his thoughts on manual therapy and its role within the rehab puzzle. I asked Greg what have been the biggest lessons he has learned so far in his life and career. I asked Greg how he learns. I asked Greg for his top life advice. I asked Greg for his top and current book recommendations. I asked Greg if there's anything he does on a daily basis that is essential to his day and what a typical day looks like in his life. I asked Greg how he mitigates the detrimental impact of all the travel that he does. 
I asked Greg if he only had one year left on planet Earth, how would he spend that year and why? And finally, I asked Greg if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who'd he invite and why? Guys, this was an outstanding episode with Greg, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Greg, thank you so much for making time. I really do appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm awesome. I'm jet lagged, but I'm awesome. <laughs> hey, where, where, where did you come back from? Did you just say? Melbourne, that, uh, Mel, Australia. Yeah, uh, you tried to do it there and you're like, no, fuck it, I'm not doing it. <laughs> no, I did, I did Melbourne, right? They don't say they're ours. That's all that I learned. Yeah, it's like Brisbane. I said ours. Is it Brisbane? Is that how they say it? Uh, I'm not sure. I only learned one. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, appreciate that because that, that's a fair trek, Australia all the way back. Three Japan. hours. Yeah. yeah. But you're a soldier. You're an absolute soldier. So be no problems here. You're you're uh, as Paul Check would say, young, dumb and full of cum, so you're you're well able for it. But listen, yeah. Greg, first time on, on a podcast, first time we've connected, I've come across your work and, and a lot of people who I respect speak about you very highly. You know, Doug Cartesian, um, Pat Davidson has mentioned you in passing, he studied your work. James Fitzgerald from OPEX, he said he took a seminar which last year and, and found what you had to present very good. Um, and I've listened to in a number of other podcasts too, as I said, you know, with David Nolan on his podcast and with Doug on his, and um, always found uh, what I'd say very logical. And you were someone I wanted to reach out to and, and get on the show. So, could you maybe just for the listeners give us a bit more of your background? Uh, sure. I mean, it's pretty similar to lots of people's. You know, I I did an undergrad in uh, kinesiology in the '90s. Like, you know, I, I was big into biomechanics and strength training then. So. Uh, and then I went, did my master's, you, we, you talked about Stu McGill earlier with Stu and I was really lucky cause I was very much into spine biomechanics at the time. So I was, uh, extremely fortunate for him to take me on. Um, but I thought I was going to go to chiropractic college. So he let me do like back manipulation research. Mm. And I was also a strength coach at the time at the, at the, at the university basketball team. Uh, so we did like lots of exercise biomechanics research too, went to chiro college really fortunate there because they let me keep doing research like gave me a little bit of money to buy equipment and do stuff and and when you're at a school that has like young people who are smart almost any school what i really learned there was like taking advantage that's probably not the right word to use but like taking advantage of the people you're working with like could work with and we produced a lot of like really simple but um simple fun and useful exercise biomechanics work there i like i wish i could have kept it going i probably could publish 10 papers a year you know in uh, 10 hours a week there because you just get this super smart young uh, student population who have all these great ideas and just hammer shit out you know like like uh, let me give you a, <laughs> i'm off topic of course but here's a quick example just of a simple thing that we don't even know it you know how people say the abs are important for running or walking or whatever the glutes something like that mm. people say that there's not a single study that would track your ab activity going from a slow walk to a sprint yeah yeah no, I, mean? I know i know that yeah sure when people always go it's a glute activation i'm like and no, no. Like, shit, t tell me any research that says that that's even no. important no, no, or like that you really need strong abs to run. I'm like, no, you don't. Like that's, we found that out by accident because we wanted to do a study looking at, because my idea is this was in like the 2000s. I was like, how do you get like an ab workout, you know, a core workout without actually doing a core exercise? You know, so we did things like deadlifts and the clean and the snatch just in a few people. 
I ended up falling out of the rehab program or the, yeah, with yeah. the researcher there. I won't go into that unless you want to hear that shit. So we had to stop doing it. But these guys were fit and strong and it wasn't lightweight. So it was two plates. So they, they were, you know, dead, they were deadlifting, uh, you know, over 225 and they were cleaning 185 and we weren't seeing a lot of ab activity. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> but they do a sit up and it'd be fantastic. Yeah, I suppose that the questions are wrong there. I mean, should it, we're, we're, that's because we're assuming that the abs are, are working in some sort of way while someone's running. Whereas the question should be, what what's going on at the abdominal region when someone runs? And you're like, we actually have no research on that. So, not not really. Like simple stuff like that. There's so many good projects that could be done, or people have ideas. Like if your hip flexors are tight, you can't squat. Uh, yeah, yeah, which makes no sense. If anything, it would pull pull you into position or something. Yeah, you were saying that on David's podcast. It drives right? me nuts. It's always yeah. bring it up because it's. Or if they're, if they're tight, they'll turn off the glutes, which makes no sense because that's not how reciprocal inhibition works. But that is so easily tested. You could just stretch, like do glute activity or hamstring activity during a bunch of tasks, stretch the crap out of the hip flexors and see if anything changes. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And that's a study we used to do in the weekend. No, I love, the, uh, I love all the band work where people go, yeah, I feel that burning in my glutes, so it must be activated. And you're just like, it's just some local metabolites building up there. It doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Like anyway, so then, so then I went on and went to physio school for physical therapy here. What, it was so yeah, get get into that. What like that? I always find that fascinating when someone like because I have a friend who's a dentist and then he went back and became a neurosurgeon and I'm like, what? You must be out of your fucking mind, like to to put all that money and time into school and. Just like so, uh, what? Why? What? Why? What made you go from? Because you were practicing, weren't you? You were Cairo, and you were yeah. Practicing. yeah I, was, I was practicing. I was on my own. When you're a Cairo in Canada, you're you're really it's, there's not many opportunities. You're just kind of on your own or with a with a group of like-minded people. And I, I really wanted more opportunities. I thought, well, maybe 20 years from now, I want to work in cardiac rehab or prosthetics or and physio in Canada. You, there's huge opportunities. Right. And I was getting a little disillusioned with the chiro profession. There's a lot of great people in it, but there's a massive percentage that are less than great. Uh, and so I could go to physio school and still work full time. Mm. The school is just down the road from my clinic. The instructors were, were great. You know, they, it was only two years. Like the school was easy. Yeah, and so yeah. it was more prag- pragmatic. And now it's just, it's really is an easier road to walk as a, as a physio, like doors open where as a Cairo, I'd have to knock and then I'd have to explain myself as a physio. It's like, come on in. <laughs> like, yeah. When you're, not, Ky- like, when you're a Cairo, you're like, I'm not, I'm not a quack. I'm not a quack. I'm not, I'm yeah. Not yeah. A yeah. That, that was it. And I got, got so tired of that. I didn't learn anything. And which is good. That'd be a problem if I had to learn something at physio school. Like in, my, in MSK, I learned stuff in other areas. I know what you mean, yeah, yeah. Um, um, but, but, but no, so it was just more for opening doors. So just, just uh, you, you kind of kind of started your whole background from like when you started with Stu. So with Stu, went Cairo, worked for as a Cairo for a while, went back to physio. But what even got you into that whole profession? Like when you were young, like, so uh, it was even before Stu, Stu, I stumbled upon Stu. I was like, uh, I'd be in second year university reading. I, I just got into like ergonomics and low back pain. And but, but even before that, Greg, like why, why even like college? What made you get into kinesiology? Like when you were oh, young, no, no, no. I was going to be a cop. Ah, uh, here we go. Yeah. This is a- cop. <laughs> and I just, I didn't, I sucked in school. I barely snuck into university. 
like in high school, I, I didn't, my brother did really well. I didn't. And he's like, if you want to go to McMaster, that's where we went. You better get your marks up. So I barely snuck in. I thought I was going to be like a police officer. And then I just randomly started doing really well in, in psychology of all places. Mm. And then, and then it's like, it's like, they, it's just how people talk about like um, fitness and fatigue. As soon as you start running faster and convince yourself you're good at something, then it's easier to do it. So then I just said, well, I'm going to try to get really good marks. And then as soon as I started getting really good marks, people were like, well, the people who get good marks, they go to med school or physio or Cairo. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to med school, but you know, that Cairo sounded cool. So that's it. I don't like the way you apply physical education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weren't any other options, so yeah. no. I was, I was wondering, so no like, more. I was wondering if it was like a case of you hear a lot of people like who become doctors or physios or or even strength conditioning coaches. Like they were young and they got injured or they got sick, and through that, then they got into the you know the rehab field with an injury, or they got into medicine because they were sick, or they got into SSC because they were an athlete and they met a coach who like made them a better athlete. And they're like, I want to do what you do. So I was just wondering if that was the case with you. No, none of that. It's just like, I like getting good marks. And then I was like, well, how do I, how do I apply this phys ed stuff? And Cairo was the best at the time for doing that. Very good. Very good. There weren't any other real opportunities. Very good. So obviously McGill, uh, Doc McGill still was a big influence on you, but who, who else had been the biggest influences on you? Not only professionally, but personally as well. Um, so what was nice at, with McGill's training. So he was like, I think he was only my prof in one one or two courses because you have these other profs but there was two two kairos there who went back who, who Stu, Stu took on and Stu's like not just his defense but in his like to celebrate how how he is as a researcher um two kairos came there to do his PhD just to like blow up all the ideas about manual therapy and that was Kim Ross and Dave Bresnick mm. and a lot of people don't know them and they really I mean Dave stopped um researching Kim's kind of still does um, but they did three or four papers that are just monumental to me that like, and this is 18 years ago that I think there's none better since. And like, they, they've just done so much that should influence the practice of people. So those two guys were, were amazing, you know, what, and it, what, it what, 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 what were the papers on? Okay. So, so one is like really simple ones. Just if you take a bones out of the neck and you start pulling it left and right, you know, is it symmetrical? Like, is the architecture and the structure symmetrical? And they're like, no, it's not. It's like, you'll get, it's harder to move one way versus the other way. It's so random in different people. So if you're going to palpate a neck and say, oh, it's stiffer over here, let's fix that. Well, if it's just naturally stiffer, because that's what the bones are like, then there's nothing really to fix there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have no idea if it's bony or not. So the justification to crack a neck based on motion you connect it <laughs> like it's it always comes simpler another one is like the skin fascia frictionless interface which is the hugest one to me because it gets rid of about 50 to 70 percent of all soft tissues or manual therapies and it kind of says if like if you if you just if you just put your hand on your cheek i don't know if you can see me here yeah yeah no, i can yeah yeah. And you know how your skin slides around on your cheek? I hope, I hope mine is. Yeah. It yeah. Is. If you press hard onto your cheek, you can't make your, you can't grab onto the bone underneath. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It just compresses yeah. it on top of it. 
So there's so many different therapies that will go in, press hard, they'll glide the skin, and then they try to glide a bone in a certain direction, like distracting the clavicle or distracting a rib laterally or tractioning the radius. You know what I mean? We say that, let's traction the radius. It's impossible to traction the radius. Yeah, yeah. You can't do it. You can't grab on top of it and pull down. But do you think that's because there's just a lack of first principles in terms of like basic physics that underpin, you know, mechanics? Like so, like most therapists in, on their courses, like they don't they don't get grounded in in like solid sciences. You know what I mean? So like they're not taught like the physics of of manual therapy or what may help underpin manual therapy. So they just come out with these things and say, oh, we're breaking down this and breaking down that. It's like yeah, but if you really understood, you yeah. know, levers and then also like pressure and just like basic physics that underpin like this therapy mm -hmm. you'd realize that that's all bollocks for the most part like so even if you knew the physics because there was another researcher that they really argued with who was at the Cairo school who i just absolutely abhor and detest as a human uh, <laughs> he really hated their stuff because he knew the physics right but their whole research program said your physics are bullshit they don't apply because you haven't taken to the, into account the skin fascia frictionless interface. Yeah, so it's yeah. separate. If you can know the phys physics, but unless you know this one thing, then you realize that the physics don't apply. You need to know this physical principle and you have to add it to your models. And yeah. as soon as you add it to your models, it just blows up all of the shitty models. Not all the shitty models, his model, his shitty model. That's gas, that's gas. And then again, yeah. what's cool is it doesn't say don't do these things. It's just don't do them for these reasons. And then it makes practice simpler. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If you're going to do like a mulligan or a manual therapy technique, you don't need to say a bunch of bullshit about realigning joints and putting it in this position. Like it's okay. It's okay to say like, uh, I don't really know why this works, but it seems to, it seems to improve your condition. That's it. So we need research like that. When, when is it helpful? When's it indicated? Not based on some biomechanical indication, which may be invalid. Yeah. So listen, you're obviously the man who's known for pain. And so let's get into that. So tell me <laughs> What the fuck is pain? Uh, I'm not. So to be honest, I think if, if I have any niche, it's pain and biomechanics. Yeah. Right? It's how we re resolve the two. I'm no neuroscientist. That's for sure. You know, every now and then I, I tap into like a, a, a textbook on the neuroscience of pain. Just, just so I know some of the new words that people are going to say. And I don't you, look. Too you, you get one page in and you go, ah, fuck this. Yeah. Yeah. It's just. I don't care. I don't care about the molecular biology of pain and all of the anatomy. It doesn't make a difference to my patients and it's not going to change anything I do. So you got it. So if I was say anything about pain, don't go down the rabbit hole. Like you can, that's one of those areas you could take a whole course on pain. It could be about predictive processing, how the brain gets involved and predicts and produces pain and it's emergent phenomenon and all these things. And I'm like, that's great. And except for maybe the research of Tasha Stanton, um, who's trying to manipulate that to help people, uh, it, it's not that helpful for them, for most of us, right? So I, I'm always like, I'm, if anything, I'm the expert, an expert, whatever that is, I'm the, the expert on applying pain understanding practically. <laughs> so in my free book, that, that was the whole point of that, the recovery strategies, Instead of which, talking about pain, which will be in the show notes, people. It'll be linked yeah, up sure. so get it. And you can donate for it as well, and you should because it's phenomenal. It, we were just saying the infographics before we went online is amazing. I thought Greg hired someone from like some Asian dude online, like on Fiverr, okay. and he's like, No, I don't know that. I was like, What the fuck? 
<laughs> yeah, well, they're all, they're all set up so you can print off one page. And so it's all set up like single one page concepts. Yeah. So, so something as simple, like I like key messages of pain. Something is like your body is strong and robust and adaptable. Mm. You just have to find the right stress, you know, to catalyze it. Yeah. You know, and yes, I, there's always caveats there. There are cases where it's not stable. It's not robust. There could be EDS or there could be previous damage, all those things. But a good clinician, and for the most part, our default is we respond positively to stress. It's just finding out the right stress. You tear your hamstring, what do you do? You load it, right? Yeah. You tear a ligament in your ankle, you load it. Yeah. You tear your ACL, eventually you're going to load it. <laughs> But it's just finding the right stressor. You blow out a disc. There's a disc herniation. Yeah, you take it easy for a while, but eventually you have to start putting some stress on that disc. Just before you go any further there, how much does like evolution just it's come to my head there, so I want to say to how much does an evolutionary perspective influence your rehab and decision making? Because you know, like I remember Dan Faff, great coach and a great mentor of mine, saying one time he's like you know, like what do animals do if they sprain a ligament or, you know, or they get a little tweak and he's like, you know, they got to keep moving. Like, he's like, surely like back in the day, like, okay, if we broke a leg, we were, we were fucked then. Like, you know, we get a disease and we die, whatever, horrendous death. But just like little things back in the day with humans, like I've often like, I got like really, I, I think I did something to my knee like about two years ago, like, and I probably should have got it checked, but I didn't. I was just like, you know what? I'm going to write this out and see what it is. And after like eight weeks, it was grand. No, I know eight weeks is a long time. I wasn't incapacitated with it, but it would swell after some activity. Like yeah. I think I'd say, I'd say I tore cartilage in it because I was squatting and there was a little twinge in it. And I was like, oh, balls. I think I, I tweaked the cartilage in that. But I just, and another time I got like a little tweak down in my ankle and it was very painful. Like felt like I tore like a bit of tissue down there. And I was just like, I just said I'd write this out again. Like, you know, trying to tell the brain it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You're yeah. fine. And then it just, it's gone, like, you know. Uh, now, in saying that, my single leg stability in that leg wasn't great for a few weeks afterwards. I still needed to rework on, like, just some single leg stability. So, but it was fine. It just got me to this concept of, like, what did humans do, like, back in the day if they got a tweak, you know. Obviously, they were like, well, like, we got to keep moving here because we don't yeah. move, we don't survive. So, just, like, does that thought process ever come to your mind? So, the, the way I would use something like that, we do sometimes, is take the principle behind that, which yeah. could have been, you know, you, you backed off a bit, you calmed shit down, and then you slowly built it back up again. And, and then, so there's the idea you want to get across to your patient or your athlete, and then you might need to sell it, like, and I don't know evolution, like, that's anthrop anthropology, I guess. I don't, I don't know that well, but I would sell it via the, the that, that way. Talk mm -hmm. about what do you think, what do you think would have happened 3,000 years ago if this happened? You know, if we were so frail and robust, you know, how did we ever adapt? Because we'd be getting injured all the times so and we have to yeah. do these things and what they, what they would go of doing. Like I, I would sell it that way with that story. So that's what's kind of fun. I'll look in like other areas of research to get analogs and parallels to pain. Like one message about pain is, especially with its persistence, is uh, it it's gets far, farther and farther disconnected from the actual problem of tissue injury. Mm. Right. It, it, yeah, and yeah. people are like, well, that's stupid. That makes no sense. Like my pain should be gone by now. I'm like, yeah, it should. But we regularly do this as humans. We regularly overcook a physiological reaction. Right. And, and like the easy example is I used to do lots of breath holding when I was a surfer and you start and you can hold it for 30 seconds. But if you train for a week, you can hold it for three minutes. Yeah. Yeah. 
I didn't suddenly, my tissues, I didn't grow more mitochondria in, you know, like what you did is you dampened down that physiological reaction of trying to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I look for stuff like, like that for, for parallels. And so evolution, I'm, I'm sure like if I read a textbook on evolution or anthropology, I could probably find some cool ones. Yeah. Yeah. So just with, like with, uh, with pain and patience, a question I like to ask people like yourself, I had a, a woman on there lately, Maggie Downey. She's, she's actually a Pilates instructor. She, she actually reached out to me to come on to the podcast and she deals with people in pain. And a question I had for her was, how do you deal with individuals who really self-identify with their pain? Like they're coming to you like, and, and they, they say they want to get out of their pain, but at a subconscious level, they really don't because they, they, they see that mm, I get all this attention and love from people because of my pain. So like, have you ever had incidents of that, like with, with patients and clients, you know, where they're so self-identified with, you know, I'm like, my back's always been bad or my knees or the shoulders all, you know, they kind of, it's almost like they like having this sort of broken mentality. Like I'm a broken person. And it's, you know, that they, that again, at a subconscious level, they really don't want to get rid of their pain because they're so, as I said, self-identified with it. And it, it, it gives them it, it gives the people around them give them attention because of, and at a subconscious level again they like that like have you ever come across any like psychosocial models of that well the, there I've, I've certainly seen models where the, the people who are i've certainly seen patients where the people around them might not be helpful yeah um i i don't know the you know the mechanisms or behind it and what what's going on but where you know maybe the spouse is doing too much you know for the person in pain and really taking care of them like being them, yeah. good. so i i always try to take people you know at 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 face value and certainly under, understand their beliefs and i don't know if i would necessarily ever uh address that head, head on yeah and say something like that like that to them um it probably won't work and would would backfire i feel like i don't think i've seen a lot of patients like that but i yeah. certainly have like sort of seen what looks like that on social media, yeah, not the people that I see. So, I, but if I did see it a lot, I don't think I'd address it. I I would really just focus on all of the other factors, like what is it you really like. It's really important as therapists that we ask people or strength coaches, like, what do you want from me? What are your goals? Because it's really easy just mm -hmm. to think that we know. And so I I'd, I'd meet them where they are, and then after time, maybe start adding in, you know, new goals and things like that, just to see how they're doing. Great. So could you take us maybe through, and again, listen, if it's too sort of general or broad or you need more context, that's fair enough, meaning that you might be able to give a, a, a great answer. But just let's say like as someone in pain does come to see you as a patient, like could you give us an idea of what that process goes like from there? So like, do you, do you have like, and I know it's, it's, it's context yeah. and everyone's an individual, but do you have certain... No, no, no. I hate that it depends answer. Yeah, so do I. Mean, I. It should, it should, I, if you say it depends, you should, you should be able to follow it up with these are the times it depends. And but, you know, Stu McMillan had a great thing on Twitter and I don't be on social media much. Uh, and I actually, I know people say it, I'm not much, but I actually am not much. But he had a great thing there the other day about it depends. He says, it depends isn't an answer. It's the starting, it's the beginning yeah. of an answer. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. exactly. You, you, you can always give a few examples of when it depends and when things matter. So, so first thing, like, so I practice in the biopsychosocial, which means uh, I think a number of variables can influence how sensitive someone is. 
right? It, it doesn't mean I don't think that tissues are irrelevant. And it, it actually means that, and my, my bias is surprisingly, is that I think tissues are relevant the vast majority of the time. It's just that I think the true pain and suffering disability is what you do with the, the tissue irritation, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, like someone can, have, so most people will have low back pain. It's almost unavoidable, right? To me, that's this, and it could be peripherally nociceptive driven. But the real problem that most people have, like when it leads to disability and fear and worry, is, and often, often anyway, is what you do with that tissue irritation. And that's where the psychosocial stuff comes in. That's where the uh, fear that could be avoidance coping, endurance coping, like avoidance coping would mean you've stopped doing the things that you love. So let's say you're afraid of flexing your back. You've stopped flexing your back. You're always bracing. You're always rigid. You're always tight. That's not healthy. No joint. That's not good for a joint. So the fundamental is the joint needs to move. So that, that's a coping strategy would change that we would, would be addressed. Someone else might come in and they're what's called an endurance coper. So same type of low back pain, not sure where it is in the back, it doesn't matter. And let's say it hurts to flex their spine. Now this is a case, and th since they're an endurance coper, what that means is they keep flexing their spine <laughs> with that for some reason. <laughs> for, they may not mean to, they might not have like the motor control not to, they might not have the hamstring flexibility not to, they might have the beliefs where like, oh no, if I just keep pushing through this, it'll go away. Uh, or I need to stretch the hell of it. Whatever's going on, they keep doing the things that hurts. So that person, we would take a different strategy, strategy, which would be to back off of the flexion for a bit. So you have, so that's what I mean by the psychosocial. It's always like we have a kernel of tissue that's relevant, and then it's what you do with it, right? And figuring that out. But anyway, so, so <laughs> that's my preamble to tell you what I do. Those are some cases. That, so then, as a clinician, what I always do is like. In my history, I need to hear everyone's story. So sometimes it's them talking for a full hour and me reflecting back what they say. And what I'm looking for is like, what do they think is going on? What have they been told is going on? What treatment have they had? You know, what are they hoping for from me? What do they think they need to do? What are the things that are healthy for them? What are the things that they think are harmful? You know, and then, and then I'm always wondering, okay, um, is there ever anything sinister or serious, like serious pathology where I need some help, right? Where there's a, this is a, a systematic rheumatoid arthritis or some, some sort of condition that needs to be co-managed. Yeah. And then I'm also wondering like, are there these yellow flags where there's other, where someone else should help me with the treatment? And it could be like severe depression or rumination or anxiety. And then when I, when I can rule out those things, then we can start coming up with a plan together. Like what are the, all of the drivers of their sensitivity, right? And it could be tissue. I start with tissue because that's, that's where most of my patients are. I'm not going to blow that belief out of the water. Mm. Uh, and then we, we fill this cup of sensitivity, meaning what are all the things driving your sensitivity? And then it's like, all right, what do you want to do together? And I laugh when I say that because a lot of clinicians and patients will say, well, you tell me, what am I paying you for? And I'm like, fine, I can do that. And I'm mostly movement-based and activity-based. Um, uh, or, and I, I, this hasn't happened, I don't know, no, maybe years ago. Sometimes you find out, oh, well, it actually did. There, there is someone where I didn't, wasn't able to help them, but we didn't know that for a long time. Um, where maybe they just need to go see somebody else. 
So you, you find their whole story and you think you have an idea of what's going on. You're like, I might not be the right person for you. I'll help you find them and I'm still here for you for whatever services I provide. But I think you need somebody else too. When does would you, yeah, no, no, it does. When, when would you make a decision on when you feel that you're not the right person? Is it like, like, so I know, and I know this is a tough question and I have asked many other rehab, um, rehab specialists before. I'm just thinking like, you know, cause it's so, it's like, it's just like, what, like it's, what do you lump everyone in under like chiros and physios and osteopaths and just rehab? I'm just, I'm, yeah. just, I'm just using rehab for the context of the conversation. But like I've asked some people this before and, and like, you know, would you say after three sessions, would you say after like how many, like uh, you... it'd be less than after th- more than after three. Cause I'll sometimes have patients where, and I think this is good for a lot of your, everyone to hear is sometimes I'm not getting clinical success until six or eight months down the line. Wow. And that's not, it's not weird because they've been in for a while. We're going to take this slow approach. You know, we've ruled out sinister pathology. Everything kind of hurts. It's not mechanical. It's not straightforward. And that happens. Uh, it, it's a slow go sometimes. It doesn't mean I'm seeing them every week. I know. It's more like I see them initially once and then maybe not again for three or four weeks. Yes, and then we talk yes. through email and I might see them again in four weeks. There's a lot of cases that do take time. There's there's too many people out there saying everyone gets better in one or two sessions. Yeah, yeah. Could and you actually? Could you actually? Because uh, uh, this will segue into a question I had for you, which was something you mentioned on your com- your conversation with Doug on his podcast. Was that we like as people as healthcare providers, particularly in the rehab realm, we need to probably start offering more of a consultancy role, kind of like what you just alluded to there. In that, like yeah. you know, people just coming back, you know, once a month, making sure everything's going smoothly. How's it going? Rather than sort of like you know, six sessions, bang, on and one, you get this acute relief, everything's great for like a month or two months and then bang, it's back again. And they, essentially you just gave them a fish but didn't teach them how to fish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, there are, like CRPS, it's an incredibly difficult condition. It, it can take time and like a long time, but people can still keep improving after a year or two of, of care. Yeah. Or, uh, sir, where are you based? I'm in Dublin, Ireland. Okay. So, uh, Paul, you know, call Paul Kerwin. Paul Kerr, the name rings a bell. No, sure. I know that you guys don't all know each other. Yeah, you, yeah. Like but, uh, the, I know. See, so you're, you're Canadian. You're not a fucking yeah. American. Sorry, sorry, American listeners. All my friends are American. They're like, fuck you, Robbie. No, but you always get like those Americans going, do you know such and such? And it's like Ireland has four, six million people on the island. Yeah. So Paul's a tendon researcher, clinician. He's really fantastic. And uh, I was there in Dublin and he hosted me. He was fantastic. And uh, But he said something. He's, he's like, so the research will show most tendinopathy if you load it progressively over time. Uh, at 12 weeks, that's where you're getting most of the effect. Like it, it peters out after 12 weeks and, and it plateaus. But Paul, on, with a subset of his research, he's having people stick with their rehab program for 16, 24, like even more weeks. And there's a subset of people who start getting better at 20 weeks, five months of consistent rehab. And so, um, like, it's okay to take some time, you know, and, and there's also that message in there of like, you know, sometimes there's going to be some discomfort. Yeah. 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 No, um, no, that's, I appreciate you, you know, getting into, getting into the answer. Cause I, in one part of me kind of dislikes even asking that question. Cause it kind of, it feels almost old school. Do you know, like when people like have, 
let's just like use ACL rehab and I go, well, like, you know, when will I be back? You know, and back in the day, you used to be like, oh, you know, so, ba- you know, back in the day, people always used to use like timelines. It's like, listen, you can't use timelines because everyone's so, everyone's an N of one, everyone's so individual. So we basically need to use like more sort of landmarks. And like kind of what you were saying there is like, listen, some, some guy, 12 weeks that the tenant loading could be perfect. Another person, it might be fucking five, six months. And like you said, a model there with some of your clients, it could be eight months, nine months, a year, another person. So it's just, it's, it's all, again, it depends like on the individual. So um, yeah. I, I almost dislike asking that question, but it was just, I, I didn't know if you were of a mindset of like, maybe, you know, yeah, you might get a feel for an individual within a, a, a certain number of sessions where you're like, I might be the person here, but I, I see where you, where you mean. But well, I mean, it might me the first time, like the, the first session, if, it, if you find, if it looks like, all the things that are driving their sensitivity and all the things, like, yeah. and, and, and especially if they're all, if, if they want to work on certain things that you're, you're not skilled to work on, then I would have that conversation. Yeah. It could be, it could be, it looks like their pain or some of their problems are anxiety and depression, and all of those things. And, and I would say, I can help you with an exercise program, but you, sh- which could help all those, but you might need some help somewhere else based on what you've said. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fair enough. Just before we move on to posture, just with pain, <laughs> just with pain. If you were asked a question like to define pain, what like what is your answer for that? Are you gonna give the the Lauren, the Lauren Mosley? No, I don't. I and I can't remember how Lorimer is. I pro, mine is probably more like Lorimer's than the IAS. I think it was a uh, mo- pain is a motivator to move or to change or something like that. Yeah, it's like your response to stress, stress or uh, sorry, a response to a threat. Which is yeah. A stressor. And and it's to motivate an action. Motivate an action, yeah. yeah. Would you yeah. would you go would you go with that still? Yeah. In general, I do go with that because it's like it's a pretty actionable. It's like okay, because what it's and maybe they did this on purpose because it fits with how they treat. So if it's a response to a threat, you can either address those those, those threats, or and if it's about to motivate an action, it sort of says. You know, this it, it's they spin that because they say it, it, that means it's meant to meant to help you. Yeah, so yeah. but it it, do, it does come across to me as an individual that comes across as empowering. Yeah, so it's kind of giving you the option of listen if it's a if it's a threat and you have a uh, you can either respond or recede from it. Like it's up to you. Yeah, and that, and I think that's what they want too. They want you to think like it's not a barometer of tissue because remember in the actual definition, if it's like perceived or potential tissue or actual p- tissue damage. Yeah. That, that's what's nice as well because it, it just sort of illustrates it's an alarm and when alarm alarms go off they don't really tell you how bad the problem is so the listeners won't can't see us but both of us are sitting down um and apparently that's just as bad as smoking for you so because uh, it's destroying <laughs> well, smoking. Our, it's so. <laughs> we're smoking joints here while we talk uh but Canada, it's legal now is it is it all legal up there is it yeah yeah not just decriminalized it's legal that's great that's great you know because i was in washington state last no not last year 2017 it's just legal there and it was gas just going through washington all these shops all these like marijuana shops it's like yeah it's legal here it's great um but tell me this am i destroying myself when i'm sitting down in a slump posture for a little little time period throughout the day so yeah I don't think so at all. I never have. I, I, I understand. Like if, and if you look at the literature, it's not that strong. Yeah. I think it's, I, uh, Greg, I suppose if we go on there, I suppose the listeners for, for the listeners yourself, it's like when people say carbs in nutrition and you're like, hold on, well define what you mean there. Cause broccoli technically is a carb. So it's always like, you know, a bag of Skittles. 
So mm-hmm. when, when people say posture, like I think most people think plumb line, you know, fucking uh, Florence Kendall's book, you know, that kind of way. Yeah. All these different types of postures up against the plumb line, you know, your lower dotic, you've got flat back, blah, blah, blah. But like really posture is all encompassing in that like you're, you're displaying posture when you're serving a tennis ball or when you're striking a hockey puck or when you're throwing an American football and for the Irish people, for when you're hitting a slitter and hurling uh, or kicking a football and getting football. Um, so I suppose maybe like postures all encompassing. So what I try to say to the listeners is like, don't just think about postures and like standing upright or sitting at a desk. You know, it's, it's, it's dynamic too. Yeah. I, posture is the, the static correlate of your kinematics. Your kinematics is what you look like as you move. That's the the way to do it. For an almost school dro- for an almost school dropout, that sounded very intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when it comes to sitting, like there's two issues there. Okay, there's, like if someone has to sit hour sit eight hours a day, it doesn't matter if they're slouched or if they're sitting upright. Yeah. If there is a problem with sitting, it's just because you're not doing anything. Yeah. Right. And then the next question is, well, you have to sit all day and be sedentary. Is that really that bad in its own right? As long as you get up and work out an hour or two per day, does that negate all the sedentary behavior? It's it's just, it's more of a question of how bad is it to be sedentary? Yeah. But it's no better to stand at your desk. We know that. Ask any cashier who has to work eight hours a day. Destroy. I, 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 I taught, like taught in the classroom for 18 months and I stood as I taught and my knees were never as worse ever. Like my knees were horrendous. Yeah. They were in so much pain because I had to stand. And I, just no, like, I regularly sit, sit down when I teach. I yeah. sit and stand and walk around. It's just, it, and again, it, it was from Stu that initially, like I was lucky I read his work over 10 years ago when I was young, just getting into the field. Like, and uh, like it, it was Stu put into my mind like that. There is no like magic posture. He's like, the best thing to do is to change, constantly change and stress different tissues. Um, yeah, we, we taught that when I was there. That was in 97. And yeah. we would go out and tell people, put your feet on your desk, move around, yeah. have variety. Uh, Kieran O'Sullivan, who's uh, an Irish researcher at Aspatar now, he, he's of the same ilk, but he, he, he did a systematic review of just six papers that looked at variable postures while sitting. Yeah, There was no difference. <laughs> what, it, what it means is like... My whole thing now is I used to teach people move around as much as you can. And I'm like, that's still good advice for me, but it's probably like, don't worry about sitting. That should, that to me, that's the conclusion. Sitting is just a tiny, if at all existent risk factor for low back pain. Yeah. 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 And then what I say is if people are, why do I have neck pain or back pain when I'm sitting? And I say, because you're sitting 10 hours out of the 15 or 16 hours that you're awake. Yeah. So it's like a balance of probabilities. Yeah. You feel it then because you're sitting, you're not doing anything else. And when you're up and moving and running around, you don't feel it because you're active. So it's not the sitting. That's just when it shows up. Yeah, yeah. That's so the other way to look at it. I don't know anyone that talks like that. That's my little thing, but I'm going to keep saying it until it's accepted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically the, the best posture is the one you're not in. I think so. Or yeah. the other way to look at it is like, if you have neck pain or back pain sitting, and it just, it just happens to be associated with shit sitting. And you say, well, what else is going on in your life that's sensitizing you? Right? So this is the idea where we add more stuff, where you add hobbies and ex- exercise, you know, and other activity and other de-stressors and things to calm you down. And then the sitting is not the problem. Then the pain decreases while you're sitting. You don't worry about it. So there is some research for that. It's like Lars Anderson. He looks at office workers 
and he gives them these boring old shoulder exercises. Like they're really lame. Like there's nothing special about them. And people have the same task and they have less pain. So they didn't calm things down. They didn't do less loading on the shoulders. They took the body parts that hurt and they did more stuff to it. So there's more stress on the shoulders, yet they had less pain. Yeah. So it's the idea of sometimes we add things to people in order to calm down the discomfort. What's coming into my mind though, again, let's say because a lot of people are sitting at a desk, you know, whatever, six, seven, eight hours a day or, or even more depending on, on their work and their schedule and whatnot. And it's the accumulation of all that sort of sitting. And then they try and go out and do an activity that requires good quality movement, but they just can't access it now because of the detriment of all that accumulated sitting. Like, so like most, most people who sit at a desk chronically, like my sister, for instance, she won't be listening to this, but she's worked in insurance like 15 years. And like, she'd be a hunchback on her. Like if she came to the gym, no way could she overhead press because of that 15 years of just hunchbackness at a desk. So I think that's yeah, where like, that, some people are, are kind of coming at this. Th- this is where I'd like to have like, better research in the debate. So this is the idea. So, so you're only sitting 8 to 10 hours a day. So why can't she take an hour every day to work on her mobility? You don't, I think oh, yeah, no, I agree. I, I agree with that. But sure, listen, you know, listen, power of habit. People just aren't going to do that. I mean, sure. Yeah, so is it, is it the sitting that's the problem? Or is it the lack of like, consistent physical activity? Yeah, that's what I would say. Like, yeah, I don't think the body's that like determined. Just because you slouch all day doesn't mean you can't access access that range of motion if you train hard. You know, most re- most stretching programs, it's forty five seconds of five second of five sets per joint. That's enough to get gains. Well, like let's say she started doing that the very first day she sat at a desk and she's been doing it for fifteen years constantly. Probably she would have maintained, you know, a better sort of upper back integrity in terms of her posture but now she's got 15 years where like there's probably calcification there those joints like i don't know how how the would they ever move back you know what i mean yeah i don't know i don't know it's it's a it's a it's a really i bet she could get some of it back but i liked so that's probably the best place where i like to intervene for postures for performance yeah yeah is to say i mean if you want to reach over your head in the future when you're 80 and get cans off the shelf then it's worth working on extensibility. Like, I oh, love when people always use that as an example. Yeah, I, I want to be able to take cans off my shelf. I'm just like, don't put them on the upper shelf then. Just fucking put them on the down, on the down, the down fucking press. You'll be fine. Well, see, I'm I switch sports to from running to like gymnastics. Oh, now, you were talking about this. Yeah, you were having issues with it, weren't you? It's some yeah, like it's hard to, and so I'm like, and for the past 15 years, I've haven't really reached backwards and over my head, and. uh she so, don't use it, you lose it. You know what I mean? The the body I never really had it, but body's all about efficiency, ain't gonna. That was one thing I really took away from Doctor Spina's courses. Like when, when I walked away from that, like one thing that kept ringing in my head was like, my, I'm actually deaf. Like my body is deaf to like certain areas of my movement. Like there's certain areas I just I don't have any feeling or sensation for. You know, so again, like his thing about being strong in your end ranges. I'm just like, holy crap! I've never been here before. My body doesn't know what's going on. It just made me realize that I need to do like a lot more mindful sort of movement practices. And well, try- only if you want to do that stuff. Yeah, no, what well, I do, I do want to do. You know what I mean? It's, no, you, you make a good, uh, a good point there. Because James Fitzgerald would be similar to your sort of mindset there too. That, you know, like James would be like, he'd have clients come to him and, and, he, and like a client book. I just want to like be able to like hike and walk. And then they go to these other coaches and, and these coaches are like, yes, yeah, so we're going to power clean and deadlift. And James is like, why? 
This person, just, <laughs> this person just wants to like walk till they're 80. Like, you know what I mean? They don't need to do any of that shit. You're just putting your own priorities and belief systems or training on them and it has no relevance. Oh, yeah, I just done that. I just do that. Everyone got cleans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cleans are, are squats. Squats cure all. But uh, no, listen, that's great. We, we've spoken about pain, spoken about posture. I'd like to get your thoughts on language when dealing with patients. I, I said that to you offline and uh, just to give some, some more background into this for listeners, it, it was something I spoke at length with uh, David Joyce before and also another great physio. He's Irish, but he, he lives in England, David O'Sullivan. Da- David's done extensive work with, in rugby, with rugby league. He's with like Lee's Rhinos and Huddersfield. I think he's, he's with like the English rugby league team as well. And he used to be at Munster Rugby. But the two boys, we spoke about like the importance of language and, and I suppose even like how you carry your, your own body language, you know, you like the nonverbal communication to a client too. So how important is that do you think when, when you're, you know, interacting with patients? I think for, for a majority of people, you can get away with saying things like, oh, this is the worst tib-fib joint I've ever palpated. You're all stuck here. You've got adhesions all down here. Everything's messed up. Or as we say as we say in Ireland, you're fucked. Yeah. Let me get in there and release all these things. And, and, and like I always think, if, if people are strong and robust, you know, mechanically, many people are strong and robust mentally and they can handle those negative messaging. But then there's a small subset of people where the language that we use, I think, really messes them up. Yeah. Right. Where we set them up to fail or we set them up to be reliant on this, where we're all we do is point out all their deficiencies. And then that's all all that they hear. Right. That that's the problem. So so I think the rule of thumb would be with everyone. We need to be positive and optimistic and point out their strengths. And and if you're going to talk about deficiencies, you say either have a plan to address them or say, you know, you can have these things. We don't even have to change them. You know, just who cares that your knee caves in a little bit when you run? It's not really that big of a deal. That's just what you do, you know, or when you squat. You, you got to make that decision. So I, I think language is huge in a small subset of people, right? I think we're screwing a lot of people when we tell them that sitting is the new smoking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people are like, wow, whatever. And then there's a subset like, oh, I'm fucked. My back's screwed because I have to sit 10 hours a day and I can't stand and there, and I have a job. I have to have a job because I got kids and a house and a family or whatever. So we're, we're messing up a bunch of people. I'm just getting a picture of all these people who are smokers and just sitting right now and they're like, not giving a fuck in the world. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sitting and I'm smoking and I don't care. Come here, tell me this. Uh, how, much, uh, how much stock do you also put into sleep, uh, nutrition, hydration and other lifestyle factors when you work with patients so those are the like that's what i call filling the person's cup tell me all the stressors that they have or they think is going on with with their pain and injury and so sleep is a really nice question to ask um to introduce to, to patients the idea that pain is more than just tissue yeah Sleep is a non-threatening one. I'm not, I don't jump in and ask about depression and anxiety and worry right away unless they bring it up. Yeah. So, but, so sleep introduced that. I So sleep all the time. Um, and then the, the problem with asking about sleep is like when it is a problem, they've probably already done the basic sleep hygiene. So that's usually the limits of my advice. And then I'm like, if it's, if sleep is really an issue, then I do recommend people see like a cognitive behavioral therapist for sleep. I think they really need help. They should, should treat it seriously and treat it seriously. Um, but nutrition and that stuff, since that's not my wheelhouse, I, 
I just ask them if they think that's an issue and how they eat. And then I do recommend seeing a dietitian here in Canada, but I don't do that stuff on, on my own. I'm like, cause then I would be a hypocrite. Yeah. And like, do, do you have people that you do refer to? No, just the, that they'll go back to their doctor or something like that. Yeah. So don't, you, send, you send people to the doctor for nutrition. What are you doing, man? You're uh, Cause world. it might get funded. And that the, the, where the healthcare system is, the, um, they might have a dietitian, at the local health network very good Come here. That's why. i want i want to get your thoughts on manual therapy where where does it fit into this whole rehab process and dealing with patients um so i take the view for the past 20 years not quite almost because that was my thesis that uh manual therapy is a is a pain reliever the reason to do it is because something hurts right and so uh, and I, I, the way I view it is it's like a Tylenol. You guys don't use that word, like a pain reliever. What, what do you call Tylenol? Uh, are we, uh, fucking what you call it? Nurofen, Nurofen, paracetamol. Yeah. Uh, okay. So like if I'm super sore or if I, I'm sick, but I want to keep training, I will sometimes take a couple Tylenol. I know that my pain or my cold or sickness is going to go in t- away in two or three days. Yeah. But I'm going to feel better during the workout if I take the, the Tylenol. So that's almost how I view manual therapy. I tell people, you're still going to get better. You're going to get better in a couple of weeks. But if you want to do some manual therapy and have some pain relief over that time, then I, I think it's, it's worthwhile. That's how I view it. Like really, really simple. I don't, think it, I don't think it changes tissue. I think there's better ways to improve range of motion. I think it sometimes helps people move differently to feel their body differently. You can guide them with manual therapy. Yeah. So I think it can be used as a desensitizer or, you know, start doing feared activities with your hands on, but take them away. But um, I'm not in the mechanotransduction model, which I used to be in. Yeah, I was going to ask you, why, 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 why don't you believe that? Because again, like, do you not think there is some forces being applied to the tissues? Like, what even, if, they, what, what even if, they, if the patient was actively involved in the manual technique? Do you not think that? Well, sure, of- then, but then you're just in external resistance. Yeah, but do you think that there is some mechanotransduction? Only if, there's, only if there's resistance. Yes. I think, the me- I think mechanotransduction comes from internally from the from the, the the muscles producing that force you think it has otherwise, to be, it's inside out rather than outside in like yeah otherwise you could like why couldn't you take a foam roller and do uh, a time under tension of a high load activity uh, uh and and rub yourself to bicep hypertrophy or glute hypertrophy it doesn't make sense yeah right guess- like why can't we do that yeah, I get like to me to be honest to me anyway the foam roller never made sense in terms of, like it, it's doing anything to the soft tissues because it's like just compressing. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. Not- well, remember what what's it doing though? So it's still tensioning via the bowstring effect. I have no idea what you're talking about, so I'm lost here. So like if you pull on a bow like a bow and arrow, yeah, that's compression on the bow. But what happens at the ends of the of the of the line of the string? They'll be under tension. Yeah. yeah. So you can create tension. And so manual therapy, you can only press the only tension you can create during manual therapy is via compression. Yeah. Like that. So, but I just don't think it's the way to catalyze. I think mechanotransduction doesn't occur just, just from tension. Yeah. I think there's probably yeah. other signaling going on. Honestly, oh, I I've, I've had no, I put no deep thought into this and you know, way more I than have. me. Yeah. Is that, uh, no, I don't know more. I don't know more because that's the problem. Like we, you just, 
there isn't a lot of research on it, but it, it just doesn't make sense that if you rub something or tension it with your muscles, which is hard to do, that'll, that it would catalyze tissue adaptation. I guess or again, I guess it, rub a bicep and yeah. turn it bigger. I guess again, we need to, well, for me in this conversation, now, and this is just me thinking out loud here, we need to clarify what we mean by myotherapy because like something like, hmm. you know, a Rolfen technique versus like an ART versus like just petrosage and effrelage. Like to me personally, I agree with the foam rolling. Foam rolling to me changing soft tissue structures makes no sense because it's just the, the way like it's just rolling over. Whereas like ART where like you're blocking something and then you're, 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 dragging a tissue through that i could maybe like that would make more sense why even though so that's this is even with art and i've said this to Leahy years ago because of that that uh, skin fascia frictionless interface it's not you can't well, you can't pin a muscle like yeah. you can't you can't see me here but if you put your hand so if you bend your arm and then mm. put your hand as hard as you can on the biceps or the brachialis yeah. you can't tension that muscle and stop it from extending yeah. All you're doing is pulling the skin. Skin, yeah. That muscle's going to slide no matter what. Because that would, if if we had friction between our tissues and our soft tissues and deeper down, if you were wore really tight jeans and you got off a bench, every, your tissues move underneath. They don't grab onto the bone and rip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you can't tension a muscle that way. Yeah. Our our we move around inside the sac our sack of skin. Thank goodness. So what what do you think then is happening when you do apply just a manual technique and a range of motion doesn't prove like? Because that 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 actually has been shown in some studies where like and that that's actually that actually was even shown with foam rolling where they foam rolling yep. and you gain. Is that just pure neurological? Is it just well we it's inconsistent. A lot of those foam rolling studies didn't have a good control group. Yeah, and they and the experimenter was also the person who was stretching them. And, and remember, they stop the stretch, right, when, they dis, when the experimenter decides to or when yeah, the patient yeah, yeah. says to stop. There's yeah. a very famous study. So we did a study with Alex Vygotsky as the first author. I was like the second or third author. And we found random changes in range of motion. We foam rolled the front of the thighs. But anyways, I, I don't doubt that people get more mobility after foam rolling. One, it's viscoelastic. Anytime you move it mm, there'll be viscoelastic changes and, and it'll be less stiff and you'll get more range of motion. So that's great. Yeah. Uh, two, there's the sensory theory where you get, um, that's like habituation. You get comfortable doing a painful activity and you can go farther. Yeah, Those are yeah. the big ones. The, the theories on muscle, like spindle gain and all those, that that's not very well supported, surprisingly. Um, this is Blazevich's work. He's done it more in stretching. Like, when you're slowly stretching, there's not a lot of like spindle activity that stops you from moving. That doesn't seem to change. Really, because I've, I've heard people say that like if they knock you out, like you just go under like an anesthetic that like they could. That you, they yeah, could, yeah. But it doesn't mean it's spindle. It doesn't mean it's like this autonomic process. That more means like you're uh, subconsciously fighting it. We do need a paper like that. I really want someone to do it to knock someone out. But it, but it's not a, it's not a reflection. <laughs> just that. If, if that was the sound bite, to, I really want something to do. Just knock someone out. That'll be the sound bite. Yeah. That'd what, be amazing. What, what was Liam talking about? There is, there is some work on stretching the calves where like at the end range, you'll get like seven to 10% of muscle activity. And that doesn't seem to surprisingly doesn't seem to change with long-term stretching. Can Maybe I ask, short term. Can I ask that uh, just for, just for we, we almost wrap up here too. Like <clears throat> there, there was, 
I remember being on again. I, I honestly don't be on social media much, but I, I asked a question. Twitter, Twitter's Twitter's great for continuing education. Yeah, no, I, I, well, I, I've seen it. Yeah. It's I suppose because it's the the fucking the characters. Well, then again, you know, everyone's be talking about Trump on it, don't they? I just, I just, I just blocked three shitheads on it. I, I don't go on there for fights. I go on there with like people who disagree with me but are respectful. Yeah, I and don't go on either. Like Stu McMillan. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no, my body, there's too much love in my body, so there's no room for hate, so that's all, all right. That's it. But come here, I, I remember I was on one time, and I put up something about, like, you know, just about manual therapies, like, what, like, has, what, what would people recommend as some of their top manual therapies that, you know, and, like, jeez, the absolute war that went on, then. and it wasn't even, like, it wasn't even directed at me, like, just people on the tread. And I was already like, hey, get, get off my fucking Facebook wall. I don't want this going on. Like, like everyone just, like, relax. But the sort of the sort of feedback was like, oh, it's all bollocks. And, like, you know, people sticking needles in and don't know what they're talking about. And blah, blah. It was just vicious. But the question, <laughs> I, have to, the question I have to you is, like, wh- wh- like, where are you with all that? Are you kind of like, listen, if people want to draw a needle, but they, they can turn around and say, listen, I know that the science behind this is poor. But some people seem to get a rea- some people seem to like it gets results. Some people doesn't. Yeah. I don't use it in everyone. Uh, I I like the manual therapy thing. Like basically with the manual therapy, if someone came around and said, "Listen, we don't know the mechanisms. We don't know what the fuck's really going on here. All I know is that when I apply some of these techniques or with my hands or with external tools, it seems to help certain individuals. It's a tool in the toolbox, basically, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like like to me, like that's fine. Like that's where I'd be. I like I don't see any harm in, in having these tools available if you think that they could help. It doesn't mean just as long as you're not using this one hammer and everything looks like a nail type job. Yeah, i I would agree with all that with the simple caveat. There's a subset of people where it is harmful because they've had it so much and they're reliant on it and they're not doing the healthy things to help themselves. Yeah. Right. Well, so that, what people will say that, is like, that would be the people that we are excluding here, like you know, don't really yeah. So there. there, there is a subset where it's people will say, "Oh, I use manual therapy as a window of opportunity," and yes, you don't need to, but yes, it's one option. And then there's the point where if people are completely stuck on having manual therapy, then you, uh, I always gently explain that I don't think it's the right thing that I'm that I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, is it is it is it is it like it really all like it's all just coming down to like are we applying the appropriate sensory input to get the output that we want from the system? Yeah, that that's it. And to me, like the uh, the next question there is uh, so what's the input? And yeah, and that, the, and that input could what's be the true output. What is it that has to change with our patients or clients? Yeah. That's a really hard question to answer. But like what I what I was gonna say, the input could be anything. It could be like verbal. You could say mm-hmm. something. Yeah, it could it could be touch. It could be manual technique. It could be, yeah. it could be like any like it could be you just like adjusting someone's posture or you know it it might you know so it could be manual. It might be manual. It could be verbal. It could be like any of the sensory systems: sight, vision, sound, smell, haptic, whatever the hell proprioceptive. It's just that like some people were just. It, like the the feeling I got off that feedback was like they were basically come, like some guys who come across they seem to be very heavy towards just like it's all in the mind and they were like if anyone using a manual technique they're just a quack like and I was like whoa Jesus like, I didn't know things had gotten this fucking extreme like, yeah just, no I I would go back a step and say what is it that has to change in our patients to get them better yeah. and if we start answering that question better then we probably see that there's a lot of ways to achieve that 
Sweet. Right. We, someone has persistent pain, they start an exercise program. They have knee OA. We really don't know what the mechanism of exercise is for knee OA. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it could purely, believe it or not, be cognitive, where you give them faith in their knee again because they, they've gotten stronger. But it's not, they're not out of pain because they got stronger. But that, we, hold on. The increase in strength gave them more faith in their knee. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Like that, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's amazing. But someone else might achieve the same result by having the manual therapy because they get manual therapy. They feel fantastic for six hours. And they're like, how bad can my knee be? Yeah. Exactly. Just rub some shit and now my knee feels better. Yeah. And then that's slowly, and they're like, well, I'll go back in a week and slowly builds and builds. And then they start walking more and blah, 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 blah. Right? It's, they both did the same thing. Yeah, they, they, there were just they, 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 different they, they, strategies that came to the same situation. That's it. It's like to it's like when you see the like uh there was this meme. I didn't see it, but a friend of mine said there was this meme, I don't know if it was Facebook or Twitter, but it was basically a fat loss meme and like someone was like, I went on paleo and I lost fat and then another one was I went vegan and I lost fat and another one was I went keto and I lost fat and then like the meme was like it had all like these different types of diets, whatever they were, and everyone's like, Yeah, this worked for me, this worked for me, like in terms of fat loss. And like, and then like, there was an equal sign beside all of them, and it just goes, "Yes, calorie deficit, calorie deficit, calorie deficit, yeah. calorie deficit." It was like that's why it worked. So like, it was just like you use. So like, the the principle was you were all in a deficit, but you just use different strategies or, or nutritional methods. But the principle was that you were you were all in a deficit. Like so, similar to someone with yeah. that NeoA, it's just it, you know, different roads to Rome. Yeah, and how how do you predict like who because. Someone might, in that diet analogy, there's people in there who probably don't want to do a paleo diet and they wouldn't be able to sustain it. But there's someone else, if they chose the vegan route, it would be awesome for them. Yeah. I mean, so that's what's important. How do you, how do you decide what to do and for whom? Yeah. Now, I have a ton of other questions, but we'll wrap up here because uh, I could speak to you all day. I, I would uh, I, I just even like the, the sort of new model of task environment organisms kind of come into my head. I'm just wondering, do, 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 you, do you do much like do you do you look at things through a skill acquisition lens often like where do you kind of see that new model of like task organism and environment when you're rehabbing patients does that kind of come into your framework uh probably by accident but not on purpose yeah you know like how i train people to move differently i could probably get better at that yeah. I, I probably do it more with my own training <laughs> with gymnastics because it's so skill-based what got you into gymnastics uh, my little girls do cheerleading, but cheerleading in, in is gymnast is team gymnastics. So I was like, so you're doing, so you're doing, doing so what you're telling us is you're doing cheerleading. Yeah, I did. I I was in my seven year olds tumbling class for a year, and she kicked your ass. Seven to eleven year olds. Brilliant. Come here. No, I I have a, a few little quick wrap ups. Um, what would you say have been the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life and career? Uh, I. The big one really is to be pretty humble and have a lot of humility. And it, and it goes back to the idea, like I was, you know, Adam Meekins, of course, my joke is I was Adam Meekins before he was Adam Meekins. I was like that much 15 years ago, where I was very little more aggressive. Uh, and be, because you have to respect others that they can practice differently from you, but still help a lot of people. Yeah. You got to be really humble there. You might disagree with their methods, but you, again, if, if we knew better about why people were getting better, then we, then we could be more accepting of how people practice differently. 
So I'm still always really open to, to other, other approaches. How do you learn? What's your learning process? And so I, um, yeah, go ahead. Again, I try to think of like, you know, why is something working? Like I was just talking with Alistair, I forget his last name, Dempsey and these people at ACL tears. Like, you know, I believe the research on, on ACL prevention. I just don't know always how, how, why they work. That's what I'm so interested in. So like I'll learn a topic and then I try to challenge like myself of why I think something is helpful. So I, I learn something and then I try to take the opposite view. That's what I regularly do. So if I think posture is not relevant for pain or neo way, uh, and I have my ideas of that, then I go out and try to read other people who say something different from me and look at the research. Yeah, it's the old debate technique, isn't it? You know, when you used to do debates, you'd be like, to defend the other side, so you'd be really ready for it. And I'm like, yeah. You take the other I view. never get stumped in my courses. I always like how I want people to like challenge and, and I, I, that sounds pretty arrogant, but it's been a while. Like, or I think I get stumped. I'm like, well, you don't, no one knows the answer. So now, you know, people, if you're my arrogant hat. So everyone knows now, if you're taking a course, on, you to stump them. bring it, bring it. Yeah, love it. Uh, <laughs> what would your top life advice be to any of the listeners? So if you had to leave one little piece of advice behind. Uh, related to like their career? Anything, anything at all. doesn't have to be, well, life advice for me, it's kind of all encompassing. Oh gosh, I never give life advice. <laughs> uh, you know what? For for those in like your thirties and forties, to me, it's like uh, prioritize uh, activity and exercise. Good. Work less. Like that. What do you, what What's your top book recommendation, and what are you currently reading? Uh, so I I just read my nerd books, like. When I was a kid, I used to read all these fantasy series, like Robert Jordan and all that stuff. Like, never heard of that. Elf. That's like a fifteen-volume book, and my brother and I would always read it since we were kids. And and then we were in our late thirties, and they're not even done it. We're like, is, is this guy gonna die? Like, I want to know what happens at the end. And sure enough, he dies. The author, poor guy, but they got someone, Brandon Sanderson, to come in and finish the books, and they were great. It was fifteen books. So I read these nerd books or Steven Erickson. They're like ten you know, 10 book series. And then there's, there's seven trilogies, which are prequels. And so I read stuff like that. Cause I'm always on the plane. I just have it on my phone. And so I read stuff like that. I don't really read stuff in our field, uh, except for like, I'm looking on my shelf here, the sports gene by David Epstein, but I read that years ago. And now I would recommend a non nonfiction book would be Alex Hutchinson's Endure. Alex, a bit yeah. of a friend here in Toronto. I mean, I've been reading his stuff for years so it's really it's nice to see that he's put it all together um so you don't read any stuff in the field he's a phony he's a phony i knew it no no i read um it's like i have i'm looking at my shelf of all these books where I, that i'm supposed to read like the telltale brain the power of habits just uh, i only just read that look here it is here in search of memory i mean suggestible you like i know i'm supposed to read that stuff uh <laughs> But, but I, oh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd rather like, uh, I don't know. I'd rather just go to the primary source. So I read a lot of like literature, like the actual research. Yeah, literature. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, a day in your life, a typical day in your life at home, obviously you travel a lot. What, what's a day in the life look for you? 
And is there, is there anything you do on a day-to-day basis that's essential to your day? You're like, I have to get that done to make every day a win. Yeah, yeah. So like, like I said about the, the exercise, that's the, the priority now. I try to make sure that I, I get that in. So it's either tumbling, rock climbing, or I and go, go strength training now. And I don't enjoy strength training, but it's one of those things where I think I have, one, I have to do it for the sports I do, and one, I should do it for when I'm 60 and 70. So I'm going to go do shitty squats that are, that are disappointing compared to what they used to be a long time ago. So, but, but anyway, we, just with your typical day, like what, when do you rise? What do you do? When do you exercise? What's that? Uh, like? Well, I'm jet lagged. So today I got up at like 9am because that's, that's like one in the morning Australian time. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit, I'm a bit, me- uh, a bit messed up, but I get up with the kids and then now it's, it's cool. The past year and a half, I'd only been seeing patients like randomly at, at my house, like not a lot, but we just moved and we just, uh, I have an extra building, building slash room off the back of my house. Oui. So Tuesdays and Wednesdays are now patient days. Clinic days. Why did you move? Just bigger house? Bigger house. Same price, way bigger, twice the size of the house. Like okay. before, I, before I let you go, because you, you travel so much, do you, do you have any specific strategies you use, you know, to, to like uh, diminish like circadian disruption, your sleep, you know? Drugs. So no, no. So when I fly to Europe, I fly the, the Thursday day flight, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Again, to London. I have like a couple beers and a sleeping pill. Try to fall asleep by one or two your guys' time, which is weird because that's nine o'clock my time. Yeah. And then I get up at 10 a.m., I go to the trampoline place at Heathrow and then I'll fly on to wherever I'm going. So I take that extra 12 hours and then I, then because I'm only there till Sunday, I, I do take sleeping pills. That's like the, the only drugs I ever take. Not I've tried doing much. it without and melatonin and all those things like, but I would get, I'd get sick from not sleeping. Do you not like, do you not try any, uh, like light strategies? Like, uh, like when I travel, I just make sure I just get light at the, so like I wear my blue blockers and cover my skin at right times. And me, I find meal time and, and my light exposure key. I never have any issues since I started doing that. Like I went to Indianapolis last year and when I, when I went there and came back, it was brand new shampoo. Anytime I go traveling, I haven't had jet lag in years since I traveled, since, since I became aware of circadian rhythms. Like that's just me personally though. Yeah, so the the drug helps me get onto it because then I get up or I get up at ten in the morning, get outside with the light. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other than yeah. that, and then I go work out immediately if I can. Right, last two for you, you mad fucker. Uh, you've got one year left on Earth. What would you do with that year? <laughs> uh, probably the same stuff. I don't. I don't think I'd change much. Love it. No, I love when people give me that answer because people go, "I do this and that's like, well, why don't you know that?" Like, oh. no, 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 because like my kids would still have to live. Like, I'd still be living here. I probably wouldn't travel as much. That's it. Just but I still have to. I still have to have something in my life, or then it would it, it would ruin it for my kids if I just focused on them. Right. Absolutely. Right. You know what I mean? Like, if you just so I still make sure I'd see my kids more, but I couldn't always just see them because that would be too hard on them. Yeah. All right, last one for you. We're going to dinner, and I say to you, Greg, you can bring five people to this dinner, dead or alive. Who would you bring and why? Oh, my God. Oh, I, I'm not good at these ones. I don't really – to be honest, I don't really want to meet people. That I, might <laughs> like. I don't like humans. I don't, well, yeah, you, do you know what I mean? <laughs> like uh, – 
it would, it would probably, you know what, to be honest, like, I, I think I'd rather bring, bring like old friends that I haven't seen since like, yeah, that's school. fine. That's fine. Yeah. yeah that, that's what I do. And I've still seen some of these guys, but not, not enough through the years. Is there any one, is there any one individual though you would, you would really have loved to sit down with and you knew going into this, whether it was an interview or dinner, you knew going into this, that anything you asked, they would, they'd answer honestly. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like, I'd hate to like force some dude to have or woman to have dinner with me that didn't really want to. I feel like they're getting tired of these requests. Uh, you know who, you know, it's funny cause I, I thought of this the other day and now, now I'm stuck. I can't remember who it was. Like who would I be interested in? You know what? Maybe like I, if I go back to my youth of the people I used to read, like I wouldn't, maybe someone like Scott Fitzgerald, but then we would just get like drunk. What's wrong with that? Yeah, um, those guys, Camus. But then I'd feel like Camus. Although I used to read them, they'd be kind of like not as cool as I thought. Picasso would probably be an asshole. Uh, I don't make assumptions, but oh no, he definitely was an asshole. He is, seems like a bad man. But uh, he's the guy who cut off his ear, was he? No, that's Van Gogh. Oh. Yes, yes, thing. I don't know if I want to hear these guys talk. I've seen what they've read. That's probably enough. Christ would be interesting, especially if you could comment on how people have done all these things in his name. Jesus. I'd say you come back and go, whoa, whoa, this is not what I meant. (laughs) Yeah. Good one. (laughs) That'd be amazing. I love that bit in Family Guy. He was like, now for my next miracle, I'm going to turn this water into a boogie. (laughs) <laughs> just, and the next next clip is just him like John Travolta like you know oh, savage yeah no, it's funny because when people ask me that question of who I invite like you know he so like again it, my, my, my five people change but sometimes he's in there and again I always say like whether he was real or not real or if he was made up or whatever but like the entity that, that he was if he came it'd be great but uh, you can always just see him you just walk in and go I knew it I knew you weren't white you couldn't be living in the Middle East you had to be tired <laughs> of course he was <laughs> that hair and beard is majestic. Uh, no, listen, that's that's listen, savage conversation. I really appreciate you making time. Um, obviously, plug the old website. What about some upcoming um, seminars, events, workshops? When are you back in Europe for any of the Irish or English-based uh, people? Um, you know what? That's like, I think I am in Ireland. I don't know if it's this year. You were meant to come last year to Sligo and you didn't. Yeah, you know, I didn't. We had like eight or nine people signed up and that's like normally not enough. And then I canceled it. And then literally loads of people got it. Like 10 people emailed me and I was like, it's just, 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 just so you know, like uh, that is uh, like, cause I, I've been involved with loads of seminars, like hosting seminars here. And like the people like will get onto us. Like this would be three or four months out from the seminar. Like no one signed up. There's only 10 people. I'm like Irish people don't sign up to like literally the week or two weeks before the seminar. It'd be fine. And like, there was 30 or 40 people out like this. That's yeah, that's what this, this almost felt like. Uh, no, I think I'm just in like, in June, the closest thing I'm in is uh, Hertz Valley in the UK. I don't, but I, I totally am in, in Ireland. I'm just looking. Oh, it's, it's next year. It's like April, 2020. Oh yeah. yeah. So we'll be here. Yeah, I'm looking into 2020 now and it's almost full. So, so the, awesome. that, that seminar is almost full. No, 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 no. Like your my, schedule. My, my yeah, schedule whether saying, or not that happens yeah that's it's kilkenny is that how you say that kilkenny oh you do say, say kilkenny kilkenny yeah oh that's they, funny they're the like the, uh, when they think they know irish they say kilkenny 
No, it's Kilkenny. Oh, that's hilarious. Where yeah, that's... Kilkenny? You you've been you've been to Dublin, Kilkenny. Where else have you been? You've been anywhere else in Ireland? In Cork? No, just Dublin. Just Dublin. Yeah. yeah, listen, I'll try and get down to that if I can. Twenty twenty. That, that's literally a month before I hand in my dissertation. Uh, nice. Yeah, so that that's been in May twenty twenty. Uh, website and the free book. It's all greglayman.ca. CA baby. Greg, you're an absolute legend. I'm going to press stop here and say goodbye to the listeners and I'll say goodbye to offline. So for everyone listening, as I've been saying on all the podcasts recently, you were spoiled people. All this information for free. And you start charging you motherfuckers. Um, no, seriously, I wouldn't do that because I'm all about sharing the love. But listen, uh, for everyone listening, check out Greg's stuff. Shoot him like a message on Twitter. Tell him that you appreciated his time here with me today because I truly did. And as I said, he's a legend, and uh, I really appreciate you. Just want to make sure that I do say that to you while we're online. Yeah, for thank all you. The, for all of the listeners, as I always say, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.